Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Wright Jr. We have a full program today. Uh, I want to start off by introducing Seattle Port Commissioner Fred Feldman. And I'm going to have uh, Fred Feldman, my co-host for this segment of the program, will go ahead and take off right now and let folks know what he's doing and why he's doing it. Well, thanks so much, Eddie. And uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which starts tomorrow. And I'd like to really thank you for all the work you do and your other programming as well. I, and I begin to uh, acknowledge and appreciate the work of here, Miri Cypress and Branda Anders, my guests, for providing context for today's conversation. Uh, Miri is a regional director for the Anti-Defamation League's Pacific Northwest office based in Seattle, where she furthers ADL's mission to address anti-Semitism and all forms of hate and advance civil rights across the Pacific Northwest. Branda Anderson is the teaching and learning specialist for the Holocaust Center for Humanity. Branda previously taught world history and social studies at Kamiak High School in Mukilteo for 19 years. And so, um, you know, we uh, passed out, the Port of Seattle passed a proclamation last year to say we should remember uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day and recognize the importance of never forgetting. And so for me, uh, you know, my dad fought in World War II. And while I'm I'm not a religious Jew, I'm a cultural Jew. And to me, you don't have to be um, either, or you don't have to even, you know, be a strong supporter of Israel to take offense by any sort of discrimination, especially something as arbitrary as uh, as this. So I um I took on this effort, and it's really consistent with a lot of the other work our fellow commissioners have done in recognizing, you know, in Black History Month and the discrimination and institutional racism that exists and with Asian hate, and that's been going on as well, no less going back to the uh, Muslim ban. And we've all rallied around these causes, and this is just um, very important that we do the same. But the day is to remember the liberation of the Nazis' largest concentration camp at Auschwitz, and total of more than 6 million Jews and other nationalities were um, were slaughtered in this general effort. And, um, and Elie Wiesel, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, said, to forget the dead would be like killing them for a second time. And then I, I think the one other quote that I'd like to uh, leave you with is that, um, that is a Martin uh, Nemel, Nemeler, I'm sorry, but, and this I think is the broader context that I think is very important for today's discussion. First, they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. And so we're here to stand with you, to join in this conversation, so we all are able to define what it is that we're talking about and provide that context. And I really appreciate uh, uh, Miri for start. I mean, I'm sorry, no, Branda, you're going to give us the history to start off with. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Eddie, for having me on your show today. I'm very excited to be with you and your listeners. Um, first, I'll give a little context. Um, Fred alluded to the International Holocaust Remembrance Day is established on January 27th, which marks the liberation date of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, it became an internationally recognized day in 2005 when the UN member states agreed to hold commemorative ceremonies to mark the liberation. And it has since grown. Um, 
the goal of International Holocaust Remembrance Day is twofold. One is remembrance, as, as Fred alluded to, to keep the memory alive. And two is education. Um, and that, for me, is where we, we jump in. So um, historian Doris Bergen has a quote that I think is incredibly important. Um, she said, every society gets the political movement that matches the social concerns and frictions of that society. That defines how the Nazis rose to power and were able to, in their time in power, not only marginalize, but murder millions of people, six million Jews, as Fred said, and millions of other group, uh, members of groups. Um, the Nazi regime banked on people following laws. And what they were able to do is build a society in which public discourse and public policy based on exclusion and prejudice were normalized. One of the things that a lot of people don't fully understand about the rise of Nazis is that their policies dealt with the struggles of the time and attacked minority groups. The majority of people, the policies actually benefited. Hitler used it, what, what is known as America's model. Hitler was obsessed with how the United States had settled through that uh, sort of very contentious construct of manifest destiny, the continent, um, and the American policy of expansion and exclusion, which obviously included the um, destruction of indigenous cultures, as well as the enslavement of Black Africans. Further, Hitler had, when they built the Nuremberg laws, which were the laws that officially discriminated against the Jews in Germany, his lawyers studied American Jim Crow and segregation laws. They were obsessed with how the American model was working. We were the model of segregation in the world at the time that the Germans used. When, one of the most interesting things for me is that the legal theorists in Germany at the time were very uncomfortable with the extremeness of the American segregation laws. In particular, you might be familiar with the concept of the one drop rule, that having one drop of whatever is considered African or black blood made you subject to the laws of segregation. The German legal theorists at the time, the mid 30s said that policy was too extreme to be accepted by the German populace. And so instead, when they were defining who was Jewish in the law in the same way our laws defined who was Black in America, they instead went back two generations, feeling that America was too extreme. And I think that's an important thing to understand um, as we talk through this narrative. Now, as a brief, brief overview of the Holocaust, um, when we think of the Holocaust, we should think of it in really three stages, from 1933 to 1939. From 1933 to 1939, the Nazis normalized prejudice through public discourse, like I mentioned, and public policy in Germany in particular, marginalizing um, the Jews in particular, but also marginalizing political enemies like the communists, other um, perceived racial enemies like the Roman Sinti, commonly known as the, the gypsies. I don't use that term because it tends to be pejorative, um, as well as homosexuals and other uh, catch-all groups. That's the beginning stages, normalizing the fear of the minority groups. From 1939 to 1941 is when we see the growth of murder and mass destruction. 1939, September, Germany invades Poland. World War II starts in Europe. A couple of days later, Britain and France declare war and you've got a war in Europe. From that point on, the Nazis began their mass murder in a very slow progression through Poland and into Eastern Europe under a divide and conquer policy that pitted ethnic groups against each other, the Poles against the Jews, Ukrainians against the Jews, what have you, in the areas that they controlled, the Nazis um, would begin the process of murdering Jews 
From 1939 to 1940, we have the beating of ghettos. Many of you are familiar with that, uh, with the ghettoization process. In, uh, in two years, half a million Jews died in ghettos from starvation due to forced, uh, forced labor and food rationing. At one point in the Warsaw Ghetto, um, residents were allotted less than 200 calories a day for food. When I was in the classroom, I reminded my students that's less than their daily Starbucks. And so starvation and disease were the first mass murder plans of the Nazis. In the second phase of that time, from 1941 on, we have what's called the Einsatzgruppen, which is a very technical German term for essentially murder squads. In that time, members of the Einsatzgruppen went behind the military as the military expanded, rounded up Jews from local villages and shot them. 1.5 million Jews died at the hands of the Einsatzgruppen. And as we see, there's this escalation. If you think of the phases of the Holocaust, the normalization of hate and prejudice, the, the teaching of the danger of the minority, and then targeting them for murder. Um, what we're most familiar with and what, the, what our day tomorrow commemorates is the beginning of the death camps. And that starts in 1942. In 1942, the Nazis decide that the, the Einsatzgruppen are no longer efficient, it's taking too long, and they develop what we commonly call the killing centers. Those would be Hemlo, Belzic, Sobibor, and Treblinka. These camps were designed purely for murder. The average uh, lifespan of uh, specifically a Jewish person, but in some cases Roma as well, in those camps was about 45 minutes. More importantly, Auschwitz and Majdanek were killing centers and labor camps. So they, they were what we call the hybrid camps. Um, and that is the beginning of the industrialized murder. It didn't start with Auschwitz, but it certainly ended with it. It started with the marginalization of a group in a society, the normalization of prejudice and hate. That becomes public policy. That becomes a feared group. That leads to murder. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'll end here with this kind of important concept. The Holocaust was not an accident or aberration. It occurred because individuals, organizations, governments made choices that not only legalized discrimination, but allowed prejudice, hatred, and ultimately mass murder to occur. I'm gonna hand it off to Mary to kind of transition into, uh, into her discussion on uh, modern anti-Semitism. Well, thank you, Brenda. That was really moving um, and, and disturbing, but such an important reminder for all of us to continue to familiarize and, and honor this kind of history. So I work for the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, and we are one of the nation's largest organizations that addresses anti-Semitism and all forms of bigotry. And I want to build on what Brenda was talking about by, by reflecting on what we're seeing today in our society as we honor International Holocaust Remembrance Day. What do we see as we look out upon our communities? You know, where, where are we standing? What are we doing? Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is how a lot of the societal norms in um, unraveling that I think that we saw um, in the 1930s and 40s during World War II. Um, I think, you know, it, it can be ripe to make some of those comparisons when we look out on our communities today. And one of the really powerful teaching tools that we at ADL have is this pyramid of hate that Branda and many other educators use to educate school groups and elected officials and law enforcement and all sorts of stakeholders on how do we slowly normalize these kinds of attitudes and jokes and behaviors and slights 
And like a pyramid, the layers build upon each other and become more and more serious over time. So you have these really serious, um, you know, kind of scary um, behaviors and actions at the top. But I think it just goes to show you that, you know, a pyramid is layered and you can't have, um, you know, discrimination um, and systemic racism and different forms of widespread oppression without having these kinds of normalized attitudes in which prejudice and bigotry against many communities are deemed acceptable. So I know it's a little bit hard for listeners to maybe visualize that pyramid and what it looks like and how the layers build upon that. But I think really what we're seeing today is how hate has become normalized in recent years. And maybe what we thought um, was a little bit, um, you know, more historical um, when it comes to anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry is really um, becoming more normalized and mainstream. Um, And I'll name, you know, a couple of data points that we work with at ADL because we really value how information and accurate data can inform action and policy. And one of the things that we've been doing at ADL is since 1979, we've been collecting reports from individuals in the communities and institutions about their experiences with anti-Semitism because you know, law enforcement does collect some of this information, but it might not be the full picture of what's actually happening. So as a trusted organization with our community, we get reports. And last year when we published our annual audit, we saw the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents ever reported to ADL since 1979, with, which is well over 2,500, almost 3,000. And those incidents are serious. They're, you know, vandalism, assault, harassment, we're seeing threats against Jewish institutions. So we're really seeing, um, I think, both people feeling a collective responsibility to speak out, but a really dark underbelly rising up and starting to become more widespread. Um, I also, you know, one of the recent pieces of research that we put out was a public opinion poll surveying the American public. And what we found is since 2019, which is just a few years In recent memory, anti-Semitic attitudes have nearly doubled, um, with many people in the population believing a number of anti-Semitic tropes that have been ever-present throughout our history. And, you know, when we originally started doing this kind of attitude research, um, you know, post-1940s, 50s, 60s, we started seeing much more acceptance um, and respect for the Jewish community and a sense of belonging. And I think it's just really illustrative of this like scary backsliding that we're seeing. And in terms of how powerful, um, you know, discrimination um, and biased attitudes can really become. And I guess I'll just maybe close with like two last points. Um, You know, I think as a person who identifies as a white Jewish person, I move through the world with a lot of privilege. You know, I don't have a talk with my kids about policing and what happens if they're pulled over by the cops. And I think about that because we are in this huge, hugely important period where we're post-George Floyd having massive conversations about race. So on the one hand, I really recognize how my white privilege has played into the person I am today, to the sense of you know entitlement that I feel in certain spaces. And then on the other hand, I also walk into synagogue and it's heavily armed. I send my kids to Jewish preschool and it's heavily armed. I've heard of threats to Jewish day schools and institutions. I go to my office. I have, you know, 
a, a very intense security system. I've been personally targeted because of my work at ADL by neo-Nazis who have been federally charged with hate crimes. So it's this kind of weird balance, I think, with the Jewish community today in this, you know, racial reckoning of like finding out who we are. And I think having to better explain the nuances of Jewish identity and the history of where we've been and where we are today. So I think I just wanted to walk your listeners through that because I think the power of personal experience is really important. And, you know, I kind of dread the day where I'm going to have to explain to my kids why there are armed guards outside of our synagogues and our schools and our cultural centers. And it's, it's just a really powerful, I think, reminder of the vulnerability um, that we as Jewish residents, you know, community members, et cetera, in the U.S. are facing. But the only other thing I want to say, Eddie, because it looks like you want to jump in, is that, you know, as maybe some aspects of anti-Semitism are unique and we, like every community, has a unique history and a unique identity, you know, our theory of change and why we do what we do is the theory that we're all connected and that, you know, rising tides are going to lift all. And if one community is vulnerable and being oppressed, we are all, you know, potentially going to be vulnerable and oppressed. So I think that notion that we're talking about anti-Semitism today is so important. And sometimes it is left out of the conversation and it is so tied to what we're seeing. And I think the conversation around allyship and solidarity is so critical and recognizing how fragile, you know, our country is at this moment and the necessity of building community and relationship and empathy for one another. So I will leave you all with that. Okay, uh, that's great. We have about a minute left. I want to go back to the commissioner and have him uh, wrap things up. What's going to happen during the Friday the 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Is there any plans, activities, anything that people can see online or somewhere else they, that interested? Well, I, I will leave it to them to close on that. I just want to make sure people are aware that on the 24th of January, we did pass this proclamation that basically calls for incorporating training and education in the port so that, you know, we can, if you see something, say something and understanding what that really means. So uh, that's that's what we have incorporated. I also encourage folks if they want to get a little bit more in detail on how uh, entrenched our own United States was in in, in, in uh, support of this effort, in, uh, Major Maddow's show on called Ultra really talks about how incredibly racist our country ourself was and not getting into the war and all these other things. And then, of course, Ken Burns' show, you know, like six-part series on the Holocaust. But the whole first part of it is all about, you know, United States complicity in that. But for folks who want to do uh, something tomorrow or the weekend, what's what's in store to Folks have events going on. Go right ahead. We have an oh, we have an event tonight at the um, uh, Museum of Flight, the Boeing Museum of Flight here in Seattle, called Holocaust by Bullets. That you can look at the um, HolocaustCenterSeattle.org for information on that. Okay, thanks much, and uh, Merrick uh, uh, Cypress, thank you very much, and Commissioner Fred, thank you thank for you. putting it. And David, thank you for thank organizing, you. brother. We really appreciate you. So I'll be talking to you guys real soon. The next part might be really interesting, talk about the black soldiers who are fighting the Nazis and liberating Jews from the death camps. So we're going to take a break, uh, Eric, and come back with our next guest after this. 
Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community, and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Need help getting started with self-help? You came to the right place. Alternative Talk, 1150. All right, sounds like Stevie Wonder. Thanks, Irv. We appreciate that. Uh, We're back at uh, Urban Forum Northwest. Let me say, first of all, uh, Urban Forum Northwest is brought to you by the Port of Seattle's Diversity and Contracting Office, uh, Sound Transit's uh, Civil Rights Office for Equity and Inclusion, and uh, uh, the City of Seattle's Purchase and Construction Services Office. Want to give both folks a shout out. I appreciate them. So my next guest is Dr. Quintara Taylor. As most people up here in the Northwest know, he is the founder of BlackPass.org. And he and I were having a conversation. I started doing a little research and found out that uh, Black soldiers played a significant role uh, uh, liberating Jews from concentration camps in Holland, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, and other places. And uh, some of the folks that we've, we've been looking up, and like Dr. Taylor said, you know, the Army has no record that they were ever there. Well, I posted some pictures of, uh, on my Facebook page of them being there, Okay. <laughs> So I want to make sure that myth is destroyed. But the 761st Tank Battalion was uh, uh, highly uh, favored by the folks they were liberating. So, Dr. Taylor, I'd just like to have you know, uh, some people don't have any idea that uh, Blacks played such a a profound role in liberating people and fighting the battles against the Nazis and liberating Jewish folks from from, uh, the death camps. So I'd just like to have your, your perspective on that, sir. Well, I, I don't know if I can add much more than what you've said, but but what you've said is pretty much correct. Um, first of all, let me back up and say that there were at least uh, 200,000 African-American soldiers who, who were in Europe. Uh, they fought in every area of Europe. As a matter of fact, we're working on a project right now to bring attention to uh, the 92nd Division, which was the old Buffalo uh, division, uh, which was kind of the 
the the legacy of the Buffalo soldiers, the earlier Buffalo soldiers, and they were instrumental in liberating much of Northern Italy. And of course, the same thing happened uh, happened in uh, in uh, Northern France and Germany. As a matter of fact, black soldiers were some of the first to move into what was at that point Nazi Germany. And of course, that brings us back to your point about the liberation of the, of the death camps. Um, I, I don't know if we can quantify the number of black soldiers who were involved in the liberation of the various camps, partly because of what you said before, the army didn't keep records of this. The army, and, and that's what's surprising to me because the army normally keeps records of everything. But uh, as you also indicated, the, uh, the uh, 761st Tank Battalion was broken up into smaller units and they were assigned to, uh, to different capacities. And they were involved, we know, in the liberation of at least uh, one, one death camp. But I think where the evidence come, becomes palatable is when you go back and look at and talk to the survivors. And when I say the survivors, I mean, on one hand, the people who were in the camps, and on the other hand, the people who were part of the liberation. And what's, I think what's interesting about this is that uh, there, are, there is documentation, there's documented evidence of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, survivors of the camps, talking specifically about black soldiers uh, being part of the liberation force. And in fact, describing them graphically because many of the Jewish uh, 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 concentration camp victims had never seen black people before. Mm -hmm. And so the, the very idea of African-Americans as soldiers and African-Americans as American soldiers uh, was, was a shock to many of them. On the other hand, there were individual black soldiers who talked about their role in liberating the camps. But again, the problem is that there is no official record of this. There's no, uh, we, can, we can talk about eyewitness accounts, uh, a number of eyewitness accounts, but we can't see that those eyewitness accounts verified in the records. And that says to me more about the racism of the US Army at the time than it does about what actually happened. We know what happened. What is intriguing to me is why what happened seem to be erased from, from the public record and from historical memory. And only now are we beginning to go back and try to recreate that memory and recreate uh, that history. Well, Dr. Taylor, I wanna let our listeners know if you really are interested in Black, Black History Month starts next week. And here's a part of history that's been buried. Uh, and uh, I, that's why I posted some of the pictures on, on, uh, on Facebook. You can go online and, and read about uh, the contributions of African-American soldiers uh, in World War II. Uh, but uh, that's why I actually posted some pictures up of these black troops uh, who were uh, right outside of uh, uh, the, some of the death camps. And uh, uh, there's also, uh, I guess one gentleman uh, had a, uh, said that he had, like he said, never seen a black person. He said, but I'm so happy to see that black man raise up out that tank because we just got free. But, uh, the whites in America did not want to have anything to do with sounding, our, our letting people know about our participation, which is sad. And uh, uh, from the past administration, you know, it's one of the things is uh, we really find out exactly how many people of that ilk are still around. And uh, you're talking about at least 35% or better. And it's amazing how some people are able to do anything in this country and walk free. 
Uh, even, I mean, you know, turn over trying to overturn the United States government is a pretty serious issue. I know I told you we're going to talk about something else, but I had to put that in there. Uh, and, and the uh, the uh, other group that I read was reading about, was, they were called the Black Panthers. And that was the first group of Black Panthers. And, and they were over there as well, uh, freeing uh, uh, prisoners of war from the death camps, I should say. So, uh, Dr. Taylor, what do you think we can do to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Governor DeSantis would say this is critical race theory, you tell the truth about African-American participation in the development of this country, even though my daughter Angela Rice says we built this joint for free. 254 years of slavery will attest to that. But what do you think we need to do to make sure that uh, the truth gets out about the participation of Black folks uh, in, in this country? Well, I think we need to do what you're doing right now. You're talking about it on radio. And I will say one thing that that there is, and I won't get into it now if you want me to send you the list, I will, but there's a long and growing list of books and articles that talk about African-American participation in World War II. And, and interestingly, talk about the presence of Blacks in Germany and the presence of Blacks in concentration camps. It just as an aside, this is not directly related to what, what you're discussing, but I, I taught history for a long time at a number of institutions, including California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. And I personally brought to my class, to my history class, a survivor of the concentration camps. He was living in a place called Santa Maria, which is about 30 miles away. And we were able to arrange for him to come to the class. This was back, this was back in the 1980s, so it's some time ago. And I sat there mesmerized because I assumed that he was going to talk about uh, Jewish survivors because we, you know, that was the focus, the Jewish people who were in the concentration camps. And he said, did you know about the Blacks who were in the camps with me? And that, that was, that was mind blowing to me. No, I didn't know anything about the Blacks who were in the camps with him. And he started talking about the various groups. And of course, fast forward to today, there are books now uh, that are out that talk about the Blacks who were victims of the Holocaust. Uh, the, they were Afro-Germans in many instances. They were also people who were in Europe who were swept up uh, in the Nazi conquest and ended up in the various concentration camps. And so when we talk about the concentration camps, let's understand that there were a lot of people who were considered dangerous to, to Nazi Germany who were, who were swept up into those camps many of whom didn't survive. We've got profiles of some of these people on, on Black Pass, including the profile of one person who was actually Black and Jewish who ended up in the, in the concentration camp. So there's a lot of history out there that needs to be exposed. And you're doing that job. You're helping to do that job with this program by talking about these kinds of topics. And as I said before, the one thing that I think is, is good that, that offers me, I guess, encouragement is the fact that the truth is coming out now. That yeah, more and more books, more and more articles are being written that talk about uh, not just the role of Blacks in liberating camps, but the role, the much larger role of Blacks uh, in World War II and the presence of Afro-Germans, of those people of uh, African ancestry who were in Germany who had to deal with uh, the Nazi Holocaust. We just profile. I'll, I'll make this point, and then I'll stop, Eddie, because you know I talked. No, 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 no. You, you're talking just right. Go right ahead. But, but we just recently posted an entry on a fascinating individual 
whose German name I will not attempt to pronounce, but he was an Afro-German and he was killed by, uh, by the uh, brown shirts in 1932 in the street fighting that was going on. People, some people may know that before the Nazis came to power, there was a struggle for power between the communists mostly on one side or certainly people on the left and people on the right. And this person was one of the leaders of the left uh, resistance to the Nazis. And of course, because he was a leader of the resistance, he was eventually uh, killed. And now there's a monument to him in, uh, in the city in Germany where this took place. Uh, there's recognition of what he was doing because he was part of the first resistance to the Nazis, the resistance even before the Nazis took power. So there's a lot of history out there that needs to be brought to light. And we will continue to do this. You will continue to do this. Maybe you'll, you'll have a program on some of these folks who were you know, Afro-Germans who were caught up in the in the Nazi, what I call the larger Nazi Holocaust. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Taylor, we'll have to have you on to talk about you, the expert on that one. But you know, uh, in looking at this stuff, uh, the Germans had some propaganda they were putting out. And it was saying, this is to the colored soldiers. Why mm -hmm. are you, why don't you like Germans? When you go home, you can't go to a white church. So, and we know that uh, they were black folks in the camps is getting getting slaughtered as well. We know that as well. I think my earlier guest, Brenda Anderson, had made a very a good point about that. And I want to let people know, too, that uh, two hours or so after this radio program, this edition of Urban Forum Northwest will be accessible on uh, on Alexa and also my podcast. Then the programs are archived on my website, urbanforumnw.com, for a year so uh, it's not just a one-shot deal. It's a 24-7 thing in a couple of hours. But um, in, in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, getting the word out, uh, is there going to be a major problem of, of, of educators following Rick, Rick DeSantis's uh, edict about uh, uh, not having uh, African-American studies anywhere? Uh, are you asking me? Or, or see, yeah, you down there with Greg Abbott, so you probably would <laughs> Yeah, I, I can say a lot about that. Um, I, you know, I talk about the, the so-called Texas Revolution, the Texas uh, War of Independence, and I talk about the contradiction there that essentially Anglo-Texans were fighting to break away from Mexico uh, in order to continue the enslavement of Black people. And of course, exactly. we know that Black people in Texas, to a large measure, including people right here in the county that I'm in right now, fought with the Mexican army because they understood that the Mexican army was an army of liberation. But that's that's another story. What, mm -hmm. I guess to answer your question, uh, what I just explained to you, which is the truth, is now considered heresy in Texas. And I'm not even sure I would be invited to say what I've just said to you in public schools in Texas. And that's how bad the situation is. Uh, and But I think there are a lot of people who are pushing back against that. And I, I've already heard that there are going to be lawsuits against DeSantis's uh, attempt to try to shut out uh, African-American history. I mean, this, this is an inevitable march. You can't stop. And I want to be careful with my words here. It's not that you can't stop African-American history. You can't stop the truth. Okay? You can't stop the truth. Well, the truth lives in, in Florida, and his name is Benjamin Crump. And ben, he's filing a suit against uh, uh, Governor DeSantis. Right. Uh, on, on the African-American studies issues. So, yes. And of course, one of the things that I don't need to, to sort of tout Black past, 
But as long as we have uh, institutions like uh, websites like Black Pass, it's going to be impossible for some legislature or some governor to say, there's an erasure, we're, we're going to order the erasure of Black history. Black history may not necessarily be taught in the classroom in a formal sense, but as you know, Eddie, you and I are old enough to know that before, what, 1969, Black history wasn't taught in the classroom anyway. That's right. That's it, was, right. It, was, it was taught in churches. It was, in church, it was at home. Okay. It was taught in a whole host of places. And now we have the ability uh, through the internet with, or, with uh, uh, programs like Black Pass to make sure that that history is not erased. Yeah, um, unless there's a way to pull everything off the internet, and I don't think that will ever happen. happen. Unless there's a way to pull everything off the internet, there's far too much history out there for anyone, any politician of any political stripe to say, no, we're not going to allow this kind of history to be taught. Because Clementara Taylor, I want to thank you very much for your time today. We'll have you back on because you always have, you got all the research now and you got blackpass.org and people need to know how they can access the information. So I want to thank you today. My next guest is King County Council, Mark Luther King Jr. County Council member, uh, Rod Dombowski. And uh, he got his Mark Luther King lapel button on, as you can see. And uh, he has uh, joined uh, the uh, council in, in February 2013. And he is uh, vice chair of the committee with the money. And he's also <laughs> done some very historic things uh, with the environment. So welcome to Urban Forum Northwest, uh, council member. Uh, why don't you just uh, start out by giving uh, our listeners a, a couple of minute overview of uh, who you are, where you came from, and what your priorities are. Well, thank you so much, Eddie. And I've really enjoyed the previous conversations, including the one with uh, Dr. Taylor. It's always fascinating and educational to hear him. and. Um, just, just, uh, just to, would let folks know uh, learning about Black history and Black soldier history. Uh, several years ago, I was over in uh, uh, France for a visit, and I visited the American Cemetery, the Meuse Argonne Cemetery, and there's a number of World War One veterans buried there, and there's thousands of crosses. Um, one of the cross caught my attention; it had gold lettering on it, and and I went up and read the name. It was the name of Freddie Stowers. And uh, I, he was a Medal of Honor uh, recipient, it noted on the, uh, on the cross, Freddie Stowers, S-T-O-W-R-S. So I did a little research. Freddie Stowers was an African-American soldier in World War I. He was deprived of the Medal of Honor despite his heroic acts in the waning days of the war. But 76 years later or so, then President uh, Bush, the first one, uh, awarded him uh, the Medal of Honor and also additional research after congressional action was conducted to see who else was left out. Um, and so for your listeners who are interested in that part of history, it's a pretty compelling story of justice delayed and ultimately not denied, but certainly delayed and denied, I think, to many of his family, uh, but worth checking out. Um, so thanks for having me on. It's a privilege to be with you. Thank you for your decades of leadership, getting MLK, a junior way named. Uh, and I saw you last weekend when we were doing the Bill Burton Street renaming at the Rainier Vista Boys and Girls Club. I represent North King County on the county council. Uh, be almost 10 years on February 11th to be my 10th anniversary. That includes Northeast Seattle, Shoreline, Lake Forest Park, Kenmore, Bothell, and parts of Kirkland. I chair the Transportation Economy Environment Committee and vice chair of the Budget Committee. And uh, I just really appreciate the chance to come on and talk about what the county is doing 
and what's coming forward this year? Well, let's talk about the priorities for the county for this year. I know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, publicity about, I guess, the, the conditions in the jail and the whole issue about uh, uh, inmates with uh, 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 mental conditions and stuff like that. I don't know where that is, if that's on your radar. But for sure. uh, we can start talking about the responsibilities you have as, as chair and vice chair of the two committees that you serve on. Well, let's talk a little bit about the jail and the behavioral health challenges there. Uh, some would say that our jail, we run one in downtown Seattle and the RJC in Kent, as well as the youth jail um, up on Capitol Hill. But some have said that our jails, Eddie, are the number two um, uh, biggest second size in the state for, for folks with mental health challenges in jail. Many of them should not be there. They should be getting care uh, and, and not jail. Um, and we just don't have in our state adequate beds and adequate resources to date. So uh, one of the things we're going to do this year is we're going to take action on that. Um, I think on Tuesday, the county council will vote to put on the April ballot a measure uh, for to have uh, a major investment in our behavioral health uh, crisis system. Right now, if you need uh, crisis care, if you're having a mental health challenge, it's really hard to get it anywhere in the county. So we want to build five crisis care centers around the county, including one just for young people, where you can walk in and get the care you need, uh, where folks from the community can take others. So uh, police aren't always the first response, you know, and, and jail. That'll be on the ballot uh, in April. It's a 14 and a half cents uh, property tax request, um, but it would bring over nine years, about a billion to $1.2 billion to this cause to help address that and get folks care that they need rather than jail. We know if we make those upstream investments in housing and behavioral health supports, education, jobs, um, that it, it really pays off. Um, and so we've got a lot of work, you're right, to do at the jail. We're understaffed over there. That's one of our big problems. Uh, I think like a lot of organizations, uh, even Metro Transit, we're having trouble hiring enough folks. I encourage folks to come apply, work for the county. We need you. We can, we've got jobs in almost every line of work here, um, but we need additional staff. And that's been a challenge in, in the jail. We reduced our population quite a bit during COVID. Uh, from about 1,800 or 1,900 people per day on average down to about 13 or 1,400. It's come back up and it's it's stressed our system. And we've definitely got more work to do over there. Um, so I talked about that Behavioral Health Institute or effort. Uh, one of the things I've been working on uh, last year and I hope to see launched this year is called an Equitable Development Initiative. Uh, I have a real concern um, about kind of gentrification and displacement. Uh, people with big dollars coming into communities, buying up land, you know, forcing longtime residents out. I know you've seen this uh, over and over again. And I think government has an obligation to work for everybody to preserve communities and let people grow where their where their home is, <laughs> you know, and develop where their home is. And so uh, the city did something similar. We've got a county initiative that we've launched. We've got some recommendations uh, that are going to come out. And it's really about making investments in community that need investments for economic opportunity, for housing, for jobs, and supporting folks and letting them decide what the right investments are. Rather than somebody like me from North King County <laughs> telling somebody in, in Columbia City or Skyway what ought to be done, I think it's our job to bring the resources and let them make the investments, make them the decisions. So that's uh, my equitable development initiative. I'm pretty excited about that. I want to get it launched. Um, 
Finally, this fall, uh, we got renewal of our Veterans Seniors and Human Services levy. And that's a levy that, so you're talking about veterans issues. Um, it's been very popular with voters. We have the best veterans program here in the country. If you're a veteran and need some help, we can help you at the county, even if the VA can't um, or a federal government can't, I encourage you to reach out. It also makes major investments in affordable housing um, and senior centers. So that's coming up and that'll be a big could, piece. Could we get to, some information on that that program specifically, because I deal with a lot of the veterans, uh, some are disabled. And uh, I won't say anything bad about the VA because they're taking keep doing what they can, but there needs yeah. to be more done. Uh, this seems like uh, anything for veterans, you know, once they put their, put their butts on the line for the country, they come back, they get treated like third class citizens. It's really unfortunate. Definitely. I would encourage anyone with an interest there and go to kingcounty.gov slash veterans. I've spent a lot of time on my dad's a Korean War veteran. He's 94, uh, still lives at home in Renton. I grew up in, yes, where I'm from, I grew up in Renton. I uh, went to Dimmitt Middle School in Skyway and graduated Hazen High School. And uh, my dad's still there. And uh, he, like I said, he was a veteran. And so I've had a particular interest in our veterans issues. But if you are a veteran, kingcounty.gov slash veterans, we can help you with cash needs, housing needs, job opportunities. Um, we've got an office in Tukwila by the mall, by South Center. And we've got one up at uh, Northgate, uh, right near the light rail stop. And you can call my office as well, 477-1001, or Council Member Zahalai, if you're in his district, 477-1002. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, promote your colleague there, because uh, I think he have a lot of veterans in his district. I know that. So that's good to hear that something is being done at the county level. So. For sure. uh, what what is your what are you what is your what what are you working on and what is your wish list for this year to get accomplished as a council well, member? I I really want to see that equitable development initiative launched and and not with just a little bit of money but with real resources. We work with community to listen to what community needs are and they've come they've they've got draft recommendations they're going to be coming over and now it's my job as a budget writer to find the dollars to make the investments that they say are needed. Uh, and so I'm going to be spending a lot of time on that. And, and I just think it's a, it's a really big opportunity, Eddie, to bring county dollars and our budget for over two years, we are a big government. It's over $16 billion, the county budget, bigger than the city of Seattle, bigger than a lot of states. The county is a little bit of a hidden government. Sometimes people don't think about it or remember it. We don't have all the visibility of the city. Uh, but there are, I encourage folks to think about when there's need or they need some help. Think about King County. We're a big budget, 16 billion, 16,000 employees, huge operations in transit and wastewater treatment, criminal legal system, of course, but human services and housing, environmental protection. We do a lot. And uh, if folks have some needs, I encourage them to reach out. I want to get that EDI initiative launched. Um, I'm also very concerned about the status, Eddie, of our Civil Rights Commission, and I'd love to have a dialogue with you on this. It's been anemic and almost non-functional now for a number of years, and I worked with former Councilmember Gossett in his final year. We co-sponsored legislation to strengthen and renew the, Metro, the King County Council's Civil Rights or the King County Civil Rights Commission, and it got, frankly, delayed because COVID hit, and uh, and uh, is really stalled out. But right now, and this is a very sad thing to say, and I'm frustrated about it, King County does not have a strong, proactive, and engaged civil rights commission. Martin Luther King County. <laughs> it's, it's unacceptable. So 
I'm working with the executive on that legislation to fine tune it, bring it back. I want to get it passed. We ought to have a robust civil rights commission that is advancing those issues. That's bringing them forward. That's keeping us on our toes as being responsive to folks of all places in the country. Martin Luther King County ought to have it. And that's a priority for me in 2023. Uh, along that line, uh, what about uh, what is the participation level? You know, we've been, I've had affirmative action for 23 years. And a lot of agencies uh, uh, assumed that that was uh, okay to be to legalize discrimination again. Uh, we got a report from the Office of Minority and Women Business Enterprise from the state of Washington. For 2021, African-American-owned businesses did 0.18% of the state's business. 0.18. Yeah. The state's procurement agency, the Department of Enterprise Services, the procurement arm, in 2022 or 2021, didn't do 1% with all women and minorities. So I'm saying, you know, uh, then you see this, no affirmative action for 23 years, and then no action for the last few years. And, you know, we've heard a lot of promises about things that are going to happen. Uh, I know that they might say no affirmative action, but I think as far as I'm concerned, discrimination is illegal as well. So I well, for sure. how's the county doing in terms of bringing about I equity? I, I thought you might ask about that, and I apologize for not having the stat, but first let me start by thanking you for your leadership, particularly at the Port of Seattle, to make them a very res more responsive government and get folks with the need opportunities hired and on those jobs. They're a wealthy government like us. We have our, our office called Small Contractors and Suppliers Office, right? And you can be certified if you have a, a business you want to do work for the county. We will uh, work with you, consult with you, train you, and get you certified as a small contractor and supplier, which is kind of the the what followed I-200, as you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, in 2018, I sponsored some legislation to help in the job space here with a priority hire bill. Priority hire says for contractors doing work on county projects, we want you to go and recruit in communities that have been left out of the economic success of this county, where folks are left behind, and bring them into the trades and bring them onto the job and hire them onto the contract. So hire that minority-owned uh, architectural firm. You know, hire that minority-owned uh, welding shop. And we set goals. Um, for example, in the legislation I wrote, uh, we want if you've got uh, twenty-eight percent or residents at or below 200% of the federal poverty level, it applies. Or where 70% of the residents over 25 don't have a college degree, it applies. So we make our contractors go in to the community with this priority hire program and recruit affirmatively, and then we monitor and measure it. And I got to say, we've done fairly good on, a, on some of our projects. Other projects uh, could have done better. Um, and so it's a constant process, as you know, to keep the light shined yeah. on it. We're just about out of time, but I want to say that I-200 opened the door, but uh, your former county executive and governor, Gary Locke, killed affirmative action when he issued Governor's Directive 98-01 in December of 1998. That's what killed affirmative action. Thank you very much for your time today. We're going to continue this dialogue. If you got I something, to please let us know, because I like to keep my listeners informed on what's happening from the people who are the experts in the field. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you, We'll be in touch. Well, I'm going to work All with you. I'm here connected. for you. Okay. Thank you. Bri. Appreciate that. Take care. Okay. Okay. Uh, Eric, we'll go ahead and take this break and uh, come back after that. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. 
The port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Exploring new territory every day. This is Alternative Talk 1150. All right, Eddie Rye Jr. back at Urban Forum Northwest. I really want to thank my guests today. They did an outstanding job. Uh, Friday is International Holocaust uh, 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 Memorial Day. Remembrance Day. Let me get that right. And I want to thank uh, Commissioner Fred Feldman, the Port of Seattle. Uh, I want to thank uh, Brandy. Uh, Did I say her name wrong again? Uh, Ms. Anderson, and always uh, Mary uh, Cyphers from the Anti-Defamation League. And also want to thank uh, the Port of Seattle's Civil Rights Office, uh, Diversity and Inclusion. I want to thank uh, the City of Seattle's Purchase and Construction Services Office. And uh, me and Rice, uh, Lawrence Coleman, and Josie Reagan at the Port of Seattle's Diversity and Contracting Office. But I think it's really important for people to do a little research and look up and see how, how much of our history has been left out. And there's a lot of things that uh, African-American soldiers did in World War II uh, to liberate Jews from death camps. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the Army uh, didn't see fit to keep any records on Black participation uh, because we had uh, segregation here during World War II. And we just a step above that when you look at the economics of the situation. Anytime one group is getting 0.18%, uh, uh, that's just a step above apartheid. So hopefully uh, the folks down in uh, our state capital do the right thing, put a little pressure on where it needs to be to make sure that everybody is treated fairly and equitably. Uh, I'm not asking you to take somebody that can't do the job, but if you can't get on the job, you can't do the job. So once again, I really do want to thank my guest today. And I thank you very much, Eric, and you have a good weekend, and I'll talk with you next week. 